Most investments carry risk, but there's one that is all upside. The only risk-free investment is an investment in yourself. The Globe and Mail is the largest business newsroom in Canada, interpreting and unpacking macroeconomics, housing, policy decisions, and world events. Enjoy a comprehensive suite of business newsletters, breaking news, and market updates straight to your inbox. As a subscriber to the Globe and Mail, you'll get access to investor tools like advanced charting, portfolio with the Wellscope report card, providing an independent six-factor review of your portfolio, and stock screener to help you find the right investments. The Globe and Mail is offering a special digital subscription rate just for Looney Hour listeners. For a limited time, get access for $75 a year for your first year. For more details, visit globeandmail.com slash podcast. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get a key to the Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 76. As always, join me the three amigos here. We got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Rich, we're a little bit late filming the show here. Uh, where were you at? Do I look like I'm sweating? I feel like I look I'm, like I'm sweating. Uh, I'm sorry, boys. Daylight savings time is a stupid idea and we should stop messing around. Uh, that's why I'm late and I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I was, I'm in Lisbon right now with my, with my buddy, um, my, like one of my oldest high school buddies, he, uh, saw fit to come visit us now that the COVID lockdown's over and, uh, had to pop down from London. So, and I, so if I'm sweating and panting, that's why you guys know, uh, can we this get daylight savings already? Can't figure out daylight savings time. <laughs> so yeah, what, what's real? Go. Okay, so what's real interesting uh, about this, earlier this morning, Kasiv um, and, and Rich, I, w- I get up around 6 a.m. my Boomer. local time, which is one hour ahead of, you know, Eastern time. And uh, I tweeted out earlier today, I said, uh, Canada's Looney Hour podcast is recorded on Thursdays at 11.30 Eastern time. Unless Steve sleeps in, Rich is out socializing, or I forget my mic. And then we get a bunch of people commenting and, and what, what's really funny or interesting is that the majority of people responding, they all said, oh, Steve is going to sleep in. Nobody had, you know, Rich, the smartest guy on the podcast was going to screw up the clock. So uh, there you go. Another awesome go, early hour moment. Brutal. Sorry, boys. You nailed okay, it. Let's go. Um, yeah. So wait, man, we got uh, yeah, let's, let's fire it up here with some, uh, some Canadian data. We got some interesting data points. For this week, we've got a guest, a special guest coming on here, which we'll introduce very shortly. And then we're going to chat on what everybody wants to know, which is what's going on with the Fed, raising rates, banking crisis. We're going to touch on all that towards the back half of the episode. But, you know, to start things off here, um, we got some interesting data from StatsCan. So StatsCan recorded that uh, Canada's population grew by just over 1 million people in 2022. Uh, that was a record high, at least dating back to, I believe, the 1950s. Uh, and it, and uh, it was the most among advanced economies. So the officially, the population grew by 2.7% last year. Um, and so, like I said, this was basically the most going back to the 1950s. So, Rich, it's kind of what we've been chatting about on this podcast for months and months and months, which is 
you just open up the door and all these people just sort of paper over all of the, of the issues or all of the sort of numbers in this country. Yeah, I mean, you know, nothing hides shitty productivity growth and uh, crappy deficits, badly run economy, et cetera, et cetera, like huge amounts of population growth. This is going to shock you guys. I think I've softened my stance. That's not to say that I think that 2.7% population growth with no actual housing policy, with no infrastructure policy, with no et cetera, et cetera, is a good idea necessarily. But, and I, and I, I obviously think that what matters, remember I said this many times, the only thing that matters is GDP per capita, which is the productivity or wealth per person and population growth of 2.7% has a way of hiding that stuff. But what I will say in defense of that insane population growth is that I was looking at the the numbers with respect to the age groups and I like, I know this is going to be countered to what I've said, but the, the age group is actually okay. So I think like 50% of the people who have immigrated to Canada are below the age of like 50 years old. So although I still think it's crazy and obviously it's not going to work out for housing, et cetera, and all there's going to be loads of problems. It's definitely going to mean higher inflation and it's definitely going to mean hiding a lot of the problems that Canada clearly has. We are bringing in the right age group and that's definitely changed. And so I've softened my stance just a smidge. That, that's what I got to say about that. Keith, do you have any thoughts on that? I got some thoughts on the housing front, but yeah, I have some really great thoughts. Um, first of all, I am not sweating. I'm nice and cool and you know, <laughs> organized. Is that a new Patagucci? founding member of the Looney Hour. Nah, it's just an old shirt. Um, so one great thing about the population growth and the demographics behind it, it should allow me to collect my CPP and OAS <laughs> down the road. So th thank you to all the younger generations coming along. So uh, th that's good. No, and not much more to say though on, on the population growth. It, 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 I mean, the only real thing to comment on here is, first of all, Rich was... Rich was on this like on day one, and he's been absolutely spot on with it. And now it's you know now the news is getting out about it. So it is something that we have to think about in terms of how it will affect markets. Uh, but then the other side of it is uh, it, not only on the population side, but it, again we we have all these people coming in. Steve will talk about housing. They'll need jobs. The Bank of Canada are suddenly worried about maybe if there will be any jobs. Everything. So I, I think this week has just been. An outstanding week, and and late, and then in in the back half of our you know of our podcast today, uh, remind me to uh, share a, a very important view of, of something that's shifted around the world with regards to bank deposits being guaranteed, because it's it's probably the most important thing you're going to hear for a long time. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, you know our our good buddy of the show here, Ron Butler, actually put out a great tweet, which was which I thought was kind of summarize my thoughts, which was, you know, the the federal government puts out these targets. I think last year the target was, you know, 460,000 permanent residents. And then they said, you know, it was like a month or two later, there months ago, the data came out and, and they said, well, you know, it's actually probably somewhere close to 800,000 because, you know, while we have these PR targets, we don't account for foreign students, temporary workers. So, oops, by the way, it might actually be closer to 800,000. And then we get the data that actually comes out from StatsCan, you know, mid-March and says, okay, it turns out it was actually a million people. And so it's like, who's counting, who, who's responsible for counting the people here? Who's responsible for, you know, figuring out if we have enough housing and infrastructure 
to support these people. And so one thing uh, on the housing front, right, is, is the federal government sets the immigration targets for the country. So he sets the immigration targets, but then the housing supply is basically dictated by all these municipal governments. And so this just, there's no coordination between the federal, provincial, and the municipal levels to actually put together a plan. And like, you, you, I mean, you guys can think about governments, you know, how big, bureaucratic, big, slow, inefficient they are. Imagine trying to get all three different levels of them to sort of come together and, and actually build and you know help support the building of, of adequate housing. So, I mean, that's really my thoughts is I, I think that while the housing metrics are out of control in this country, I think everyone will agree prices are insane. You know, you can argue that it's a housing bubble, but so long as you continue to pump in, you know, a million people without a supply response, I, I think we're going to be stuck in this crisis for some time. Yeah, I'd like That's, to... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, if anyone's listening and they have knowledge about this, they can share it with us, uh, you know, privately or whatever. But I'd love to understand that the conversations and the thought process behind these numbers. And uh, as you can appreciate, you know, if you say, hey, we're going to let a million people in, uh, yeah, Rich, how does that affect your desk? You know, you would say, well, socially, it means that there's another million people competing for dates. That's what one thing that you would say, of course. <laughs> but then it seems about housing. But I'm, I'm sure that conversation has. Well, I would hope that it's it's taken place. And you know, obviously, we have the imbalances here in, in the beginning. But you know, if 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 governments allow the world to have a free market, you know, price discovery, you know, supply will catch up with demand, and uh, it will get sorted out. But it, it it's a pretty significant factor. Now, whether this will continue next year and the year after and so forth, uh, one thing I suggested, we do not live in a linear world. So bear that in mind. That's not going to happen. But again, this was a pretty big um, you know, revelation. Keith, to your we, point on the linear side, uh, if you study sort of the immigration flows is is... If you enter into sort of a, a, a deeper or more prolonged recession, you'll see a lot of these temporary workers leave the country. Um, similar to, you know, Rich, you know, but there was a, there was some great data and charts and stories about the, uh, the you know, the housing bubble that burst in Spain uh, right. when they had this massive, massive immigration flows into Spain and they all basically left uh, once they had that sort of deep, prolonged recession there. So, I mean, well, well, I just wanted to say, like, just for the absence of doubt, to be very, very clear, because I don't want somebody to misrepresent our views. Every single person in Canada basically is an immigrant, and the people who are not, you and everybody knows who those people are not. No one here, I think, on the podcast is against immigration. That's never been the issue. The issue, I think, the three of us constantly talk about, and and it's, I think it's important to reiterate this point, is that it's about having a plan. It's about having the appropriate levers in place to execute on that plan. And it's about not being naive about what the repercussions of having an unprecedented, this is a generational increase in your population growth, what that means for inflation, what that means for affordable housing, which we were all promised repeatedly, what that means for healthcare, what that means for schooling, what that means for all these things. And what's obvious, you guys are being too soft on this, is that two things can be true. Immigration can be very, very good for an economy, especially for young people who are desperate to work, contribute to the tax base, pay for Keith's pension, etc. And 
What's also true is that clearly no one freaking thought about the obvious repercussions of letting in 1 million people over one year. And so that's the part where I get really frustrated. Keith says they thought they've talked about it. They've in a meeting. I disagree. I don't think they thought about it at all. I think it sounded great. No one wants to say to people who are hardworking contributors to what I think is one of the greatest countries in the world, Canada, who are going to come sing oh canada love hockey pay taxes blah 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 and no one thought hey maybe we should relax some supply constraints in the housing market in vancouver etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and keith i disagree with you i think no one freaking thought about it and so we can move on i know we've got to a guest coming on in a minute but i find that it, it was not thought out and i think it's very frustrating for me I think those are really good points one one sort of quick summary before we jump to our guest here is uh if you look at the national housing data, and again, I think this is kind of a short-term glitch, but nationally in the month of February, we had a 20-year low in the number of new listings across the country. So new listings coming to the MLS resale system, 20-year lows. And that's that's amazing because we just let in a million people. And so that's why I was like, you know, when you guys like kind of laughed, I said, oh, you know, housing might be bottoming. I mean, I was- The bottom- <laughs> I was just literally just looking at like the temporary short-term data in number of homes being listed for sale. So currently, like, you know, I'm here in greater Vancouver. There's the, basically we're at like sitting at record low inventory levels, standing inventory. So it's just, yeah, demand is still weak because mortgages are 5%. You got to get stress tested at seven, but there's just literally no supply and we've just added a million people. So I think this is going to eventually figure itself out, but in the very short term, uh, we actually have, we're seeing upwards pressure on housing prices, which I'm sure will complicate the path forward for the Bank of Canada. Um, but, you know, let's see, it's 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 a tough world to figure out right now. So let's jump into our, our guest. Uh, our, we got a guest this week on Andrew Haynes. So a little bit about Andrew. Andrew's uh, background here. Um, he spent 20 plus years in the oil and gas sector, uh, near and dear to Rich's heart here. Um so he's Alberta raised. He's a passionate Canadian. Uh, he has uh, moved into oil and gas projects with British Gas. Worked all over the world with uh, BP, other firms. He's worked in 27 countries and in five continents. He's involved in major upstream, midstream utilities and commodities transactions. Again, for over the past 20 years. Yeah, hopefully you can see me. Yeah. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty well. It's nighttime here, so hopefully uh, the picture's okay. Well, welcome look, to the show. Beautiful. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Andrew, so give us, uh, we gave you kind of a quick quick background, uh, you know, and, and where are you currently right now? I'm in Singapore. You're in Singapore? And what, is, uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, I have an oil and gas advisory firm called Angra Energy that the head, former head of Duke Energy International and I are run it together. So we... I shouldn't name the clients, but we work for a lot of private equity funds and large listed uh, midstream companies on different projects in emerging markets. Um, so I'm, I'm working on some very large, you know, pipeline projects in uh, in South America, and then get involved in different LNG deals here in Singapore. So um, different different things in the commodity space and uh, infrastructure. Awesome. Well, yeah, we're excited to have you on because we've been sort of, you know, here in Canada, obviously a large exporter of oil and gas. And, um, yeah. you know, we've, we've not large enough. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into that. Um, because, you know, it, and especially to Rich's heart, you know, this is obviously uh, a boon to our economy, especially when housing slows down. And, and so oh, yeah. we we wanted to get your opinion on um, really, I guess, maybe what Canada is doing right and what they're doing wrong. Oh, and- yeah. Well, I've been a, an observer from the outside on what they've done wrong. I mean, I've been involved in so many major export project developments around the world. And everyone in the industry always just looks at Canada and just says it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, I don't want to say it's a joke. I'm not going to say it on the call, but it's it's almost a joke how Canadians shoot themselves in the foot and are unaware of the influences on them that are not always thinking of Canadians' best interests, both domestic and foreign. I mean, Canada really is just a joke, especially looking at all of the project sanctions in the U.S. in the last month. And the US LNG production capacity is going to come on string till 2027. I sent you a chart. It's just, it's just a joke. And especially when you compare similar, similar uh, nations like Australia, even Egypt somehow manages to um, launch much more project development than Canada. Canada's really been taken hostage. You know, it's, I was, yeah, I'm really excited about, you know, this conversation we're having today with, with Andrew. So Andrew and I met like, the way Rich and I and Steve and I met, we met on the internet, of course. I think it was on Twitter, yeah. going back and forth. Keith was swiping and... right. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? I was I was just looking for a financial advisor, but yeah. <laughs> but the moment I heard his voice, I said, "Oh my God, what a voice!" You know, it's a, it's a great one here. But um, so I mean, I think you know, Andrew, you've been listening to a podcast for a while, and you know that's how we think we met originally, and it's it's a lot of fun. But you know, where we're Really excited to have you share your views with everyone listening here. And I thought maybe sure. we could break it down and focus on, you know, uh, like Rich talks about ESG a lot these days. Uh, we talk about the environment and sure. the indigenous, how, how those groups, how that's affecting developments of oil yeah. exploration around the world. We got to talk about the Canadian energy policy as well. And then you you always bring up with me when we chat uh, a concept called friend shoring. You know, I think that's important as well. Yeah, sure. people probably haven't heard of that before. So maybe you want to maybe start with with Canada first, and then move outward, or go inward. What What do you think is best? Uh well, I I mean, I guess what I would say, I'm on the outside. I'm Canadian, and I care about Canada, uh, and I watch Canadian energy policy very closely because that started where I started my career, and I I grew up around Canadian energy literally. Um, but I've had the opportunity, I left Canada in 2000 to move to London, uh, to go work in the city of London, to work in M&A, where I know Rich is based these days. We have something in common there. Um, and I began working on projects all over the world and I got very involved in, uh, the energy space, um, being in management at, uh, British Gas, which used to be called BG Group was the third largest European oil and gas company before it was bought by Shell. And I did um, a lot of work with BP on senior levels. Um, And I've done a lot of work as an advisor to other firms around the world. And what I can say is I see so many, I've had the, the good fortune to work in 27 countries on five continents on energy matters. And I've seen many countries develop to the benefit of their local populations and to the benefit of the global energy markets, uh, often in very responsible ways that contributes to improved um, 
environmental responsibility and improved energy efficiency. And I just look at Canada and I just see one missed opportunity after another and short-sightedness and um, myopia. Uh, dogma. Dogma. I mean, they're just, there's so much rational discussion to be had. Uh, you know, this is a world where nothing's perfect and there are trade-offs and we have to, but there are many, many rational discussions to be had about how to benefit the Canada, but also provide a benefit to the world. Um, and I, I just see that there is a, what I'll call an environmental industry that's developed over the last 20, 30 years that maybe not everyone in the general public appreciates that uh, the environmental sector, much like many other sectors, has become quite professionalized and well-funded, and they um, have certain objectives for their own industry uh, that they pursue that may not necessarily be in the interests of uh, the general public or even of ecology in some cases. Um, and uh, a lot of the institutions that people have had confidence in since the Second World War, like the United Nations and many related institutions have, I don't want to, the word hijacked would be pejorative and probably unfair, but they've been, um, they've had their mandates modified, let's say, so that a lot of people that have environmental objectives um, have um, become very involved in these institutions. I'm trying not to use uh, pejorative or judgment words, but they've become very involved in these institutions and have prioritized certain um, environmental objectives that they think are important, um, perhaps to the detriment of other objectives, such as uh, alleviation of poverty or reduction of pollution generally, um, um, and, you know, security. Um, and so I just see that there are a lot of, and a lot of these actors are present in Canada. Um, we can come on to some specifics, but I think Canada in particular, maybe because we have a lot of people that are bright, well-educated, well-meaning, they often have entered into the, what I'll call the environmental industry some of our best and brightest and because they're very bright well-educated people they do well in this industry and they want to perform well in this industry and so one of the things they do is promise to preserve the canadian environment in ways that may not actually be in the interest of canadians or of the world generally but so, sense being a classic example yeah so so keith can run if i jump in with a question yeah yeah absolutely so, so first of all my first question andrew are, are you single uh, no, I'm married with three kids. Okay, too bad. I've, 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 heard, I've heard some discussion that you're looking for a partner. Uh, so, I, I, of course. I, I, I make the, the reason I ask... Suggestions. All right, thank you. The reason I ask is because, uh, obviously, you, you follow me on Twitter, and, and clearly, like you, I, I, I love Canada. I'm very proud. I'm proud son of immigrant. My parents live the immigrant dream. I'm also extremely aware of the math that makes Canada and their welfare state, which I've been quite oh, proud, yeah. who I was a proud contributor to. And I'm an, I'm also extremely acutely aware of how oil plays an enormous part of that. And my question, sure. uh, I have many questions, but I'll, I'll narrow it down to two, one at a time, of course. I'll let Keith go. Don't worry, Keith. My question is, um, I've made the claim in this forum and in other forums that um, one way of lowering global emissions is for Canada to actually export more carbon totally. in 
form of natural gas. Exactly. I've gotten some pushback from that, but you're an expert. I'm or just who? the I don't know. Whatever. Well, I, I was wondering if you could in, in a short snippet, just so I can use it in that uh, in the next party that I go to. Can you tell me how right I am and, and, or how wrong I am and, and just explain that and, and, and why it's possible or not possible? Or maybe I'm just totally full of it. I, I mean, I, it partly depends what is... Look, everything in energy is trade-offs. And there are different, okay. uh, there are different energy sources that have different benefits and um, have different costs. And so for me, you know, they always say all politics is local. At the end of the day, all all energy, you need to consider the, the local opportunities and then also sure. global supply may be available. In general, the world is consuming an enormous amount of coal and the world is consuming an enormous amount of fuel oil, which are terrible in uh, multiple ways many more carbon emissions. I mean, roughly speaking, coal would have double the CO2 emissions of gas, to your point. In addition, people may not realize, but coal and fuel oil have other terrible side effects in that coal releases mercury when you burn it, and the mercury poisons water systems around the world. Awful. Uh, coal and fuel oil also produce many particulates, that uh, in certain locations around the world, in particular the Himalayas or the Canadian Rockies, they land on glaciers, leave dark soot, and actually attract more heat that contributes to glacial melt, which none of us want. And in addition, um, they release particulates that create air pollution that is bad for humans, in particular in large cities, where you can have um, many respiratory problems, especially for elderly people and young people. So the export of natural gas is a win-win in every way. It, in general, will displace coal or fuel oil consumption for power generation. Um, it will generally displace fuel oil usage and industry. And in so doing, it's in general terms, I mean, it depends if it's piped gas. I understand, broad energy. strokes. But in general terms, you're going to cut CO2 emissions by 50%. And in general terms, you're going to see a dramatic reduction in mercury release and in uh, particulate emissions. Yeah. So so just a quick, quick question, follow-up. When our dear leader says that there's no business case for Canadians and Canada to produce and export natural gas to our allies, just a False. quick one, because I know Keith wants to get in there, but can you just give us like a one sentence? False. Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that... It's Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's just False. It's just not true. Look, there are, I, I forget how many LNG projects have been proposed, and there are many more in the United States and elsewhere. Not every not every single project is of going course. to be competitive, partly because there's a certain amount of demand growth around the world, and if you're going to launch a project, you have to capture a certain amount of demand in overseas markets in Europe or Asia. Um, but it's always a function of it's partly a function. If you're willing to move quickly, for example, Europe would have paid very high long-term prices to lock in secure supply if you're willing to deliver it quickly. Um, and in addition, you, of course, control your own fiscal position. So if, as Australia has done, if you see that there's an opportunity to lock in long-term uh, revenues and profitability from a project, you can adjust your fiscal terms. You can reduce taxes or provide certain other incentives to allow for the contracting to take place and the project to move ahead. 
Um, maybe there are some financial support in the form of credit guarantees or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever way you want to skin the cat. But to say that there's no basis for it, it's simply false. I mean, you're Thank you. paid almost anything to secure LNG supplies quickly. Uh, it so happens that the United States has forged ahead in the time that Trudeau has been dithering. I'm, I shouldn't get into politics. I don't know told me, but in the time that the federal government has not been assisting in uh, the development of LNG projects, there have been three project sanctions in the United States. And I sent you a chart in the email I sent you guys of links that just shows the woeful development of LNG capacity in Canada and the enormous development in the United States, even expansions in Egypt, further expansion in Australia. I mean, the, the Trudeau government position has really been not based on facts. I understand, to be fair, on the politics side, there are people in Canada that think that gas is bad, and a lot of those people reside in Quebec, and they are not in favor of a pipeline crossing Quebec to deliver piped gas to New Brunswick to export to Europe. I understand that that's a political reality, but that's a political reality that should be confronted with facts. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, NordVPN. If you're a boomer like Keith, you're probably wondering what the hell is a VPN? Well, basically it allows you to switch your location while also protecting your personal information. For example, if you ever want to watch a live sports event, but it's not available in your country, simply turn on NordVPN and switch your virtual location. You could also use it to book air travel and holidays via another country to save money. Get NordVPN using a special promo code just for Looney Hour listeners. There's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Get your exclusive deal by going to nordvpn.com slash Looney Hour. Yeah, Andrew, uh, just sort of continue on with that. Like, give us a, a another example where the, the, the success for the Canadian energy sector hasn't been as great, or why has it failed in some ways? Like, so give us a specific example of that, sort of similar to what you were just sharing then with Rich. And then if there's still time, I, I'd love to hear your your thoughts and views on what what's happening in Europe specifically, because that, that was on everyone's mind about two or three months ago, and it doesn't seem oh, to be sure. challenged much anymore. I mean, maybe just for oh, a no, it's coming. It'll, time. Come back. It'll come back. Europe got saved by some warm weather, but that problem's coming back. We can touch on that in a second. Okay, let's let's go to Canada, Canada real quick and then Canada. jump over to Europe. Yeah. Sure. So let's break it down. So on the upstream side, uh, we in oil and gas, we talk about upstream, midstream, and downstream. Upstream is the production side near the, we'll think of the wells, or in Canada's case, the tar sands mines. Canada, um, generally speaking, has been fairly successful in terms of upstream production. There's a very talented body of geologists and geophysicists and petroleum engineers and uh, a good service sector um, and uh, some well-capitalized companies that have been able to pursue development. So in general, finding the stuff and producing it has not been a problem in Canada. Canada has done a pretty good job of that. We may have you know, a reduced conventional set of opportunities. And these days it's more shale or the tar sands, but there's still lots of hydrocarbon resource that we've found and we know how to produce and have improving technologies. Canada is very talented in that area and people from Canada work around the world in that area. The downstream markets have, uh, generally speaking, were stable, but have really ramped up in recent years and that you have the United States needs more, um, sour crude uh, as Venezuelan production has fallen off and the refineries in the United States need that sour crude for, for the particular blends they produce. So the market for oil 
is strong and the um, long-term, medium to long-term prospects for oil production are that there will be severe declines globally. I don't think the Saudis have a lot of extra capacity. And so just, just to finish quickly, Rich, basically you'll have the demands there on the oil side and on the gas side, there's been a massive ramp up as Europe has gone from being a swing buyer to be a massive baseload buyer of LNG in the last 12 months. So the downstream works there. Canada's problem is the midstream, lack of pipes to get it to tidewater, as Rachel Notley would say. And there it's really been poor government coordination. I would argue deliberate government sabotage at the federal government level since 2015. And a lot of very, very aggressive behavior by environmental groups and certain indigenous groups that has seen a lot of terrorism, vandalism, whatever you want to call it, all sorts of project delays, aggressive, uh, maybe vexatious litigation that has just prevented the development of of adequate pipelines. Sorry, Rich. No, no, no. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I really apologize. I just wanted to be, can you just clarify where sour crude comes from? Where some, is that what Canada produces? Well, Canada produces different blends depending on where it, it's coming from. But when but you I, say sour crude, you It's mean, just crude that has a lot of, uh, that, that has a lot of sulfur in it. And that comes from either Canada or Venezuela? You've got a variety of sources around the world. But okay, Venezuela is a major producer of it. Okay, as sorry. Canada, yeah. Yeah, okay, it just sorry. it just so happens that the kind of oil that the U.S. refineries are tuned for, they were built many years ago right. to accommodate a certain volume of Venezuelan crude. As that volume's fallen off, Canada has an opportunity to replace it, which is why Exxon wanted to build the Keystone XL pipeline. But for purely political reasons, nothing to do with industry, nothing to do with energy security, I would argue little to do with the environment. For political reasons, that project was stopped, and there have been okay. similar challenges for the you know, the Gateway pipeline even the gas pipelines. And and the reason for this from a macro perspective is the environmental movement, they know it's very, very complicated and difficult to stop many individual wells. They know that they can't stop lots of people buying tankers of oil. So what they do is they try and hit the choke point where they try and stop pipelines because they know if they can stop a pipeline, then either their product can't get to market or it's got to go to market by truck or rail, which is infinitely more expensive and way more dangerous, by the way. Think of Black Megantic. And uh, then they can stop those projects. So the environmental movement focuses on pipelines as a way to try and stop hydrocarbon production. I've got an aside. If we if we really want to talk about making the world better and about more energy, <laughs> we'll talk about a couple of other things other than oil and gas. But Canada's really been hampered and people in the oil and gas industry around the world just look at Canada and just view Canada as hapless. The Canada is okay, just well, thank you. It, lets, it lets itself be a victim. It sounds, a lot, like our, it sounds yeah. a lot like our housing policy, yeah. though. Just bureaucratic red tape that gets in the way and politics that uh, drumps. I, you know, I never, I never thought logic. I'd say anything positive about Jacinda Ardern, but... Uh, who, know, who is that, sorry? The, the recently departed Prime Minister of New Zealand but who brought in some very radical uh, changes to planning law that have uh, dramatically adjusted housing prices in New Zealand to the benefit of young people. I saw that. I just have one more, th one more thing. Because uh, you've mentioned it a few times now um, about uh, different global groups that have connections within Canada. Maybe just explain that in a little bit more detail so our listeners can say, 
okay, now I get it now. It, it makes sense. Because I, I think a lot of people around the world, they think that the governments are acting independently. They, they yeah. honestly want to do what, what's best for their country and riding it and so forth. But uh, when you and I were chatting there a few months back, you, you just, you shared with me, uh, it became much more clear to me on, on why the world was moving in this direction in the energy space, uh, especially. But maybe just touch on that a little bit. I think that would be good for, for all of us here. Okay. I mean, there are a number of different cross currents and different people with different motivations, but I, I, I've had the benefit of working with investor relations teams at major oil and gas companies with major institutional investors, including the ESG investors at the beginning of the movement. I've also had bizarre experiences of meeting with senior Russian officials and having them talk to me about their views on shale gas in the United States, for example. And um, I've had dealings with the United Nations Principle for Responsible Investment Organization. And so I've had this perspective where I was just sort of neutral. I was just somebody wanting to learn and talking to people. And then I just began to see different patterns that I'm happy to share with you my observations. I can't provide you some peer-reviewed paper on this, but these are my observations. And I would say you've got an environmental industry that's developed. You know, we all tend to think of uh, Greenpeace on uh, the boats going out to stop ships uh, shooting at the whales or stopping uh, French nuclear tests in the Pacific. That's what I grew up seeing and thinking these guys were just, you know, well-intentioned people trying to stop harmful development. Well, over the years, it's become quite organized and big money. And so these people uh, make proposals for what they're going to do. And they go out and seek money to pursue their proposals. And that's their business, that's their industry. And I'm not going to say that they're bad people or bad intentions or that some of their projects aren't very worthwhile, but it's an industry now. And so people who work for, for example, the World Wildlife Fund, they will say to their donors, we're going to stop the oil sands or we're going to stop oil sands development. And there's no discussion of, well, is some oil sands development reasonable or is some of it net beneficial to Canada or providing energy security for the world. It's just generally their their objective to their donors is to stop or the or tar sands development. Or you'll say to people, we're going to stop the development of the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, it so happens, just taking a step back, that many of their donors, there'll be a variety of donors. So they will have donors who are people that are like you and I that may care about ecology and will donate to these organizations because we think that they're advancing environmental protection. Fully understand, that's fair enough. There are some exceedingly wealthy family offices or trusts that will have founders that uh, have uh, deeply held environmental beliefs that will donate large sums of money to some of these organizations to try and pursue environmental protection. And the people that are often in these foundations or trusts or family offices um, may be let's say more from the the finance sector, less in tune with the realities of engineering or oil and gas or defense or security, let's say. And so they just donate money because they think it's a nice idea to to save a particular forest or or stop the oil sands. And in addition, you'll have, um, let's say, more dangerous groups, uh, groups that may be large railroads that don't want to lose a lot of... uh, railroad tankers transporting oil through the United States. I won't, shouldn't name names, but you can imagine some of the large uh, rails uh, organizations in the United States that they don't, would 
prefer to have rail cars carrying Canadian produce. <laughs> or Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. You beat me to it. <laughs> and and you've also got and and then you have other groups like um, uh, maybe people that want to sell more oil that's produced in Texas that might be more expensive than Canadian crude and don't really want a, Canadian, a lot of Canadian crude coming down to refineries that they hope to sell to. And so you've got a wide variety of uh, groups. You know, in Brazil, it's quite well known that a lot of the people that donate to organizations that try and save the Amazon are actually European forestry companies that can't compete on timber prices. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't save the Amazon. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have organizations trying to preserve the Amazon. But we should all be quite adult enough to understand that people, there are different players with different motives. And Canada's unfortunately, I think, been taken over with a lot of people that have their own particular objectives. And there's no one sitting at the center of table in Canada saying, right, what's right for Canada, which is different than the United States, different than Australia, different than Egypt, different than Kazakhstan, different than India, where somebody is at the government saying, what's the best choice for this country? That's a the great Am I allowed? We got uh, we got a couple more minutes here with Andrew. So if you got uh, some some parting questions here, get him in. I got so many questions. Okay, I got one more question. Um, so the Earth consumes about a hundred million barrels of oil a day. One barrel of oil is about one hundred and fifty-eight point eight or nine, whatever liters. I'm of the view that that's not going to materially change over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I think it's going to go up, not down. Agreed. Can you, oh, well, you, okay. <laughs> that was my question. I mean, can you, I, I think that, so I get you, you beat, look, I, 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 no, no, I, I was just saying, <laughs> look, a, a friend of mine, I, a friend of mine who was with one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world was their head of energy investments. And we'd sit around the table at lunch and he'd say, look, I just don't know how we're going to supply energy for everyone's needs. Uh, he says, just look at coal. Nobody wants to invest in coal, but we're consuming more coal today than we ever have before in coal consumption. Thanks, Germany. <laughs> yeah, uh, Germany. And and look, as a quick parting shot to Germany, Germany's irresponsibility of their energy policy is actually leaving people in the dark, cold, burning trees in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Okay. So the Preach. energy responsibility of Germany actually causing severe poverty in developing nations. But um, that's an aside. You've got um, the world needs every bit of energy it can. I talk with people in oil majors all the time who just say, look, we don't know how the world's going to keep the lights on. Wind turbines. And, well, I, I mean, wind turbines may have a role to play, Steve, but I think really we, we ought to get grown up about nuclear I, well, that I, was my, that's my next question. I, I Andrew, sorry to interrupt. A small plug to the Canadian nuclear industry, which is a world leader. Canada is a world leader and could be capturing enormous opportunities if we get behind it. But sorry, you go ahead, Rich. No, no, I was just, I mean, first of all, I just want to say, I know we're wrapping up here and I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to us and for giving us an expert opinion on your views. Uh, most importantly, you agreed with me on everything I had to say <laughs> of all the stuff that I've been sharing over the last few weeks. Um, what would you think is the, what, like, if you had to just uh, quickly, you know, because I know Steve is looking at his watch, but like, what is the thing Canadians are missing in all of this? That if you had to write a billboard on the 401 that would provide the most salient point to Canadians that they can't ignore, that they need to talk about at the bar or at the hockey game or whatever, that, that what do Canadians need to know about 
oil, gas, energy, whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be specific about oil and gas. I think that uh, I sent you a national bank report, which has mysteriously disappeared from their website, but was an important report put out in December uh, 2021, talking of the risk of capital flight for Canada that you guys should perhaps share with your listeners. Uh, tragically, under pressure, I think under pressure from the government, that report disappeared from their website. But um, basically, Canada has an enormous opportunity to supply um, energy that uh, provides security and is very good on the social and governance side of of ESG, and there are ways to make it acceptable from an on an, from an environmental standpoint. So Canada has um, an enormous uh, opportunity economically when it has perhaps at this time very few others to pursue uh, to maintain Canadian standard of living, and I think they should think long and hard about what's going to replace the uh, oil and gas and mining sectors if those aren't allowed to continue to flourish. Uh, I think the Canadians should know that there are technological opportunities that the Canadian oil and gas sector could reduce many of the harmful emissions or at least cap them while increasing production if they're allowed to increase production and get it to world markets and that those opportunities for responsible development have been thwarted in my view by federal government policy and lack of uh, lack of action. Um, and there's a long story about how Rachel Notley tried to champion that and was thwarted. And I think that Canadians have been misled in um, how the, the, it's claimed there are not opportunities to reduce the harmful emissions from the Canadian extractive sector when there are. And I would say also that um, Canada, um, I, I think, has to just be very, very careful about um, what's going to happen with its lack of investment in private uh, capital stock. And um, Canada needs natural resources at this time. Um, I, I think Canada is in a very vulnerable position going forward. Beautiful. Hey, Andrew, that's, uh, that's been awesome. You know, it's been super enlightening here just as a guest. Um, you know, I want to thank you for coming on the show. We'll definitely have you back on. Uh, I think you've been super enlightening to, to Canadians, and that's the whole point of the show. So, uh, again, thank you so much for, for taking the time. No, no, it's been a pleasure. And um, I have to give kudos to Steve. I've been watching you since you had your first YouTube with Steve Keen on. Oh, that's uh, amazing. So fantastic to see how, the, uh, how your media presence has grown. And you guys, uh, you do fantastic uh, work for Canadians. Very frank, very uh, thoughtful discussion. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay. So hopefully that was uh, pretty insightful uh, for the listeners. Keith, I don't know what was your biggest takeaway there. Well, I, th I think the biggest takeaway is that Rich might have a friend suddenly. Someone he <laughs> and I kind of you asked him if he was single. I was like, is this this is getting this is, show's getting kind of weird. I know. I had to like take that. my shot. You got to take your shot, right? If you don't shoot, you can't score. That's, that's the deal. Uh, so I do, but I. I've known Andrew now for a while, and uh, and I, you know, it, it. I think he was holding back a little bit, and he was being a bit cautious. And uh, we will have him back on again. And you know, we do encourage people to connect with him. He's on Twitter, just Andrew at Andrew Haynes. I think he is on Twitter. Andrew J. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, and uh, but he he's able to paint a, a very clear view on why energy markets are behaving the way they are but most importantly though how there is a a, a political and geopolitical influence on different markets and as you heard him say like canada is is not 
being positively affected by this in terms of, you know, from an energy, you know, view. So uh, anyway, that, that was great. What did you think, Rich? Any, what was your main point that you heard? Um, I was just really disappointed that he's not single. That was like my main takeaway. I got distracted uh, by everything else after that. No, I think that the real takeaway, I think, is to learn from somebody who clearly has an incredible wealth of experience is not a believer, so to speak. I think he's that's I think that's really, really important. Um, I also think what he kept on alluding to is sort of the wasted opportunity that Canada has to not only enrich its citizens to provide for the welfare state to pay for this and pay for that, but also to support our allies to support countries that aren't as fortunate to really step up and be the Canada that I think we sort of all grew up with, which is somebody or a country that stands for values and can provide for its friends and neighbors and also for the people at home in a responsible, and you'll note that he said that several times, in a responsible, thoughtful um, manner. And I think that was the key thing for me. Yeah, yeah so I think just to end it then, I mean, the, the real takeaway here there is an incredible opportunity for Canada to do a lot better in this space. We just have to make the decision to do it. So, Steve, what else do you have on? on yeah, I mean, for- uh, you know, to, to his to his point too, he kind of mentioned off air that he felt Europe got a free pass uh, just due to a warmer climate, you know, this winter, and that you know their energy problems could re- very well likely resurface, uh, you know, next winter and. You know, that could be another question mark around the inflationary impulse potentially coming back, uh, which we you know we've talked about in this show that there could be, you know, a second wave of inflation. And, uh, you know, we, interestingly enough, we actually had Canada's inflation data uh, came out uh, earlier this week. Uh, so inflation dropped more than expected. The Bank of Canada's uh, preferred core measures grew at an average of three and a half percent annualized rate over the last three months. It's down from eight percent nearly 8% uh, last year. So inflation, again, continuing to slowly come down. Uh, headline inflation, I think it was 5.2% uh, below, and it was you know 0.2 or something below expectations. So the Bank of Canada is at least, I think, sitting there, Tiff Macklem's probably patting himself on the back and saying, okay, oof, it's coming off a little bit faster. Now I've got these banking crises that are emerging in the States. He seems, as of right now, vindicated, uh, I think, for hitting the pause button. Am I supposed to jump in here? The only thing I think people should keep an eye on is the services number. So we've talked a lot about how there's inflation, there's headline, there's core. Core is in headline X energy and food. And then you can obviously cut your CPI basket, your consumer price index into a bunch of different things. There's We've talked about uh you know, there's uh, obviously, I mean, I can read you a bunch of the stuff, which is clothing, household, recreation, food, blah, blah, blah. I think there's another way to split it up, which is goods and services. And we've seen a huge, huge decline in goods, which is, which has dragged down the headline number. The number that has not budged is services. And at 5.3%, I think that although we can give Tiff maybe a little bit of credit for taking a pause. I'll concede that. I can't believe I'm doing that. But 
just keep an eye on the services number. It's stickier. It's related to wage growth. It's related to immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Just keep an eye on that. Keith, you got any thoughts here before we head over to the Fed? Yeah, I, I think, you know, with the Bank of Canada, I think that we've also uh, discovered this week or today, whatever it was. And today is Thursday, by the way, guys. So you're hearing this on Friday. Um, but it, it's highly likely that we explained before that the Bank of Canada, they not only is it a pause, you know, that they ain't going to hike rates like that. That's not happening. And uh, you know, I'd said before on Twitter just recently that we're now at the stage where, in my opinion, the only way central banks will be hiking rates is if they have to defend their currency. I think that's the next stage that we're going towards, which does lead into the Fed and something incredibly important that there's still mass confusion going on, but not getting a lot of conversations about or a lot of uh, people aren't talking about it, except for really smart people. And... Um, but that, that's about the whole idea of trying to protect deposits in, in the banking system. So you want to do the Fed next and then jump into that or? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's chat about it because we've we've kind of got these, you know, these little banking sort of crises, uh, you know, popping up in the U.S. I mean, we, we've, we haven't really chatted much about Credit Suisse. Maybe we can get into that at some point. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of, what, maybe three, four weeks ago, the consensus was that, you know, you're getting a secondary round or a sticky inflation. The Fed was going to go 50 basis points. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had a couple banks blowing up and uh, you know, there was a, it was a healthy debate coming into this meeting that was it going to be a pause uh, or was it going to be 25? And so the Fed ended up going 25. Um, and it was probably one of the most watched pressers uh, from Jay Powell there trying to sort of read through the tea leaves. Um, and Keith, I don't know if you followed along with that. Do you have any comment or what was your kind of takeaway from that? Yeah, I think he did. He did exactly what we thought he was going to do or they were going to do, you know, hike by 25. But he had to differentiate very clearly between the Fed and the Treasury providing uh, financial stability for the banking system, as well as back to the monetary policy, you know, strategy and, and goals, which are providing, you know, price stability. So he did a, he was very clear with that. Uh, you know, obviously they talked about, he specifically said, uh, let's see here, inflation remains too high. That That's what he said verbatim. And he also said labor markets are too tight. So inflation is too high, labor markets are too tight. We want to focus on price stability. So that's telling you, the same thing at least it's been telling us now for a while, you know, they want to continue to hike rates until, you know, they're, they're very positive that they have it under control. Ironically, uh, back in the 70s, uh, you had Burns, who was the head of the Fed back then. He had to stop hiking rates and, and cut. That was more for political reasons. Uh, and then the same thing happened to Volcker in the, in the early 80s. He cut rates because the recession was coming. And it, ever since uh, this past August, you know, Powell has been saying the exact same thing. He said, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to continue to raise rates. And at the time, I don't think he was expecting, you know, a banking crisis to develop. So he did have the opportunity to opt out and say, hey, we're not going to hike anymore and all that. He didn't do that. Uh, the first thing he said was, you know, the, the system is very strong in, in the banking system. But of course, he has to say that. You know, that, that's like Rich, you know, coming out and saying something dramatic, you know, and saying, hey, run, run. But uh, that's what happened yesterday. And there were questions about insuring bank deposits. You know, that, that's, a, that's not a Fed responsibility. 
However, to let everyone know what, what the Fed did to help out uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and anyone else who's in trouble, uh, they were willing to lend uh, one for one based on the par value of a bank's bond portfolio as opposed to the, the market value. So if, if you have a, a bond portfolio, say it, it's $10 billion and uh, you know the prices have come down, it's only worth $9 billion, for example, the Fed would lend you $10 billion. As opposed to nine bin, that that's that was their way of helping them out. But the key the key message that I wanted to get into before before Rich comments as well is that there, there there's been a conversation now over the last three days of whether the U.S. will should or can guarantee term deposits for the whole banking system. Uh, Yellen was asked the question. Powell was also asked the question. Uh, we're gonna get it up here in Canada as well. You you, you just know that that's coming. And so here's the deal. So from a financial perspective, they can't do it. There's not enough money available to do it unless you have a printing machine, then they can do those things. But then you need central bank digital currencies behind it to stop all that. If any country goes down the line of guaranteeing the banking uh, deposits in the banking system, it then automatically shifts the risk from the commercial banks to the sovereign debt that's being issued by that country. So when the Irish ran into problems back in 08 or 09, whatever it was for them, uh, they didn't really realize at the time, but they you know they were getting deposit flight coming out of the Bank of Ireland, and they you know the Irish government said, "Hey, we guarantee all the deposits. You don't need to worry. Stay here." And immediately, you know, uh, Irish bonds just you know they went down south. They they got chopped in half. They weren't able to borrow anywhere and so forth. But if we do move into this next phase, which I suspect that's absolutely where we're going. So politically, no one's going to be able to say, yeah, we, we, you know, we shouldn't guarantee your deposit. Uh, that automatically accelerates this, this sovereign debt crisis that, you know, everyone's been talking about now for a while. And it puts it into you know, sort of the, the final innings. Rich, in, innings is baseball related, by the way. It's like the last or part cricket. of the game. Or cricket. Or cricket, of course. Can I just chime in here quickly? This is not. I mean, it's kind of. Is this not like the savings and loan crisis of the eighties? Like, is it kind of like? Why I'm just saying. I just think you know, and there's so much talk about inflation and the Fed. You know, the Fed coming out. I got to raise rates again, twenty five basis points. You know, our job is not done. And I can't help but think, well, hmm, isn't this sort of banking crisis? If it continues as one would expect, there's never just one cockroach. That this is going to be disinflationary. I mean. You would think over time, this yeah, yeah, there's some similarities and some things are not the same. So, like they had bad loans back then. There's not a lot of bad loans right now in the American system. It, it's it's really a confidence game. So if you don't think you're going to get your money out of that bank, then you leave. Okay, so yeah. just to chime in here, I'm obviously playing the in the real estate sector, predominantly in the residential space. So commercial is not my forte, but I certainly keep a close eye on that space. Uh, so commercial property owners in the U.S. face $400 billion of debt maturing this year. Um, and, and, you know, predominantly a lot of these, a lot of the debt is, is, is issued on, on these, uh, small regional banks. Um, and, and so one of you, one of the things you think about during the pandemic, right, is all this office space that has been leased up, uh, that, that is collateral for these banks. Um, when, when these office space leases come up for renewal, I think a lot of companies are just going to say, no, thank you, and walk away. And so I think it's it's going to be interesting because I think these regional banks that have that issued debt, 
uh, on a lot of this commercial real estate property, I think you're going to be in a world of pain. But that's just me. I'm an, I'm not, a, you know, a... Rich. No, I, I think you're making a really good point and actually exposes something that I think we screwed up on a little bit. I think when we talked about the great rate reset, I think a lot of our discussions were about the highly levered, mostly Western uh, economies, Australia, UK, Canada, whose housing sector was geared to that short end or short duration interest rate. Something we never talked about and frankly, we kind of screwed up on was the commercial real estate sector. And I think you're making a really, really good point. I, maybe I shouldn't say we, I definitely didn't think about it. I totally it missed, I, I, I fucked up. Like, you know what I mean? I missed, I totally forgot about it. You're totally right. There's loads of those short-term bonds, liabilities, whatever you want to call it, that are coming up for renewal, coming up for renegotiation, et cetera, et cetera, whose asset values because of higher uh, interest rates and lower net present values, or because of lower occupancy rates, or because of lower this or lower that, are all going to come up for renewal over the next little while. And you're, you're right. I think that there's going to be a reckoning there. So just to, to clarify, so $400 billion of loans coming due this year, another $500 billion next year in 2024. This is just in the US. And those landlords receive about 20% of their financing from local and regional banks. They're the biggest source of newly originated debt. So, and it's it's interesting because we've actually seen this, uh, you know, we've seen this commercial property damage play out in Calgary over the last five to eight years, right? As the oil and gas sector rolled over, we had all these office towers in Calgary basically sitting empty. And it's actually, people say, well, you just repurpose them. It, it's actually very, very, very difficult to repurpose these buildings into, say, taking them from office into residential. In fact, many, many times it's actually just cheaper just to completely smack the building down to the ground and rebuild from scratch. So Is that true? Really? It's, yeah, it's 100% true because you have to like rearrange plumbing stacks and and... The layouts, like the buildings were never designed to be retrofitted. It's extremely difficult, extremely expensive. And so you're actually seeing um, various levels of government now coming in and trying to basically incentivize and actually compensate developers uh, to actually go and, and retrofit these buildings. But it, in many cases, it, it just won't be enough. And I think so a lot of these office buildings, um, I think ultimately are going to be sitting empty for years and potentially just have to get bulldozed down. That's cool. I didn't know that. I, I, I always, when I look at an office building in like Halifax, they're empty or in, in the UK, I, I thought you could just like spend a week, not a weekend, but you know what I mean? Figuratively speaking, you could just go and, and throw in a, a penthouse condo or whatever. And, and you're saying it's super expensive and you can't do it. Correct. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Sorry. Cheers. So that's why, I mean, that it's, it's going to be really interesting to sort of see how this really all plays out. But, uh, I mean, back to back to sort of the Fed and the deposits. It seems that uh, you know. The, the, do you think this crisis is averted, Keith? Rich? I mean, like I, you know, I think at the end of the day, it seems to be that hey, listen, you know, if you can get, you know, five percent in T bills, you kind of leave, you leave the bank, you leave your checking or savings account that's paying you less than one percent, and and you withdraw your deposits, and that issue hasn't really been resolved. Yeah, I mean, right right now it's been paused, but that that's what it is. That they, I think they have slowed the flow of of, of deposits coming out of the you know the, the small, the mid sized banks, and you know flowing up to the uh, the larger banks. 
Uh, and if they're able to do that and everything stays fine for a while, it, it will stabilize. And the winners and losers, losers will be within the banking system. But the way that regulators will look at this, they, they don't care who the winners and losers, well, they do. But in general, they just look at it from an aggregate perspective. And uh, like they'll be fine with that. The risk here, of course, is that something else happens and it triggers even more outflows. So say that, you know, the, the magical recession happens, uh, say global conflict reaccelerates again, or like, anything could come out of the blue that could trigger this again. But I think though, they're quite pleased with themselves because, you know, they, they've been able to resolved the crisis amongst the handful of banks that were in trouble. They got through a Fed meeting and, you know, markets haven't crashed. So I think they're going into this coming weekend to say, okay, I think we've done it. You know, we're, we're okay. You know, the Europeans are doing the same thing and all that. But it comes back to the this next, because the genie is now out of the bottle. As a government, you're now going to be confronted with the conversation, how much of deposits should we guarantee and, and is it enough? And for the Canadian system, I would argue that if one bank runs into a, they have a crisis where there's a challenge at one of the Canadian banks, it's going to be the same for all the banks. So I don't think jumping from one to another is, is going to be that much helpful. Can I, can I ask you a super quick question, which is the U.S. has like thousands and thousands of banks, you know, 25 more or less that are systemically important. And then four or 5,000 smaller banks. Canada has seven. We love oligopolies. Where would a Canadian who, let's say, wasn't super keen on keeping their deposits in CIBC move their, you know what I mean? Like there's no, can you have the same sort of reaction from depositors in Canada? Yeah, initially you would. I mean. What? You'd move it from TD to BMO or... RBC to BMO? <laughs> no, get people any ideas here. No, 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 no. You genuine yeah, question. Genuine anything. question. Yeah. No, so no, genuine I question. Think, well, I'm trying to give you a genuine answer. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, yeah, people will because most people are not listening to the Looney Hour. You know, they're not doing like they're they're not they're just not informed of what's happening. And the moment they catch a, a whiff of problems and they hear it, it's it's their bank. People will move their money. Right, and they may not appreciate that maybe it's going to affect another bank as as well. So you know, you could be running out of one room into another, and someone jumps out behind the, the door at you. Uh, but it, it is fact that the Canadian industry it, it's very homogenous, right? There's it, a lot of similarities. Whereas in the U.S., as you mentioned, like there are thousands of banks, and some are very different than others. But I go back to it. If one of these events start to happen, the, the government will very likely come out and guarantee all deposits or maybe a million or two million or something like that, something that they can't really cash a check for. And then that then shifts the risk from the bank up to the sovereign debt level. That's the next, that's the evolution of this is how it, it, it goes. There's no other way it can go any other way. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't mean, by the way, it's Canada. Like it could be like any other country. Again, we're not saying, hey, Canada's in trouble here, but it, it's a global risk that everyone is, is now thinking about. And then, and you have to think about these things. I mean, it's the end of a what eighty year buildup, you know, to to this debt crisis. It's where it is. Uh, all I, all I can think about is these banking crises. Your your story from Bermuda. 
open the banks, open the banks. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I remember. Get out the door. Open the bank, open the bank. That was from our event in uh, the hockey hall there in Toronto. I'll never forget that. Um, Do you guys want to quickly, the last, we've got to wrap this up, but uh, any sort of parting thoughts on uh, also on Credit Suisse? I know, like, yes, I know it's been sort of this dead carcass for, you know, almost a year now, but uh, it it finally, finally went down, finally went down. So um, just maybe the, the, the larger ramifications here, like I said, I don't, I, I'm never a big believer that there's just one cockroach, but um, there has to be ramifications from this, no? Rich? Oh, I was just, I mean, Credit Suisse to me is like kind of, an, I know it's, it can sound quite banal and almost flippant, but it's non-issue. Uh, Switzerland has a, is, is an extremely well-capitalized country. They have a current account balance of 5%. They have huge reserves. I think they can negotiate and navigate this shenanigans. Uh, wow, what it is is they're getting egg on their face, and and no one likes that. And I think that once they sort of deal with it and and basically wipe out the cocos and wipe out the equity holders and wipe out the death holders, and I think in, in six months from now, no one will be talking about Credit Suisse. That that that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a similar. However, I think it's it's also. Um giving other banks the, the opportunity to, to once again say who's where is your counterparty risk what are right. they exposed to and hey, like I mean the, the poster child has been Deutsche Bank you know for years everyone is, is looking at DB saying hey when, when are they going to implode and, and all that and there's so much irony with this of course because it's it's the Germans right it's the German bank and they're the ones you know with, with the biggest one on the planet that could just you know go poof in the middle of the night um, yeah I, I don't but again people like Rich has explained before, Credit Suisse is not the same as a regular deposit bank. It's it's an investment bank, you know, primarily. That's that's what they're involved with. Um, anyway, you know, and there she was, Steve. Gone. Gone. Uh, Keith, the, uh, you, I think you mentioned to, to keep an eye on this several podcasts ago, but you said, you know, keep your eye out for when the, uh, the, the Fed swap lines open up and uh, the floodgates are open. So I don't know if you want to quickly break that down. Well, I mean, oh, I have like something to say. Oh, go for it. All right, what do you have? Well, all this like talk on Twitter about how the balance Fed's balance sheets jumped and it's like no longer QT and blah blah. blah. People are like conflating quantitative easing and tightening, which is buying bonds in the secondary market in order to to keep and control bond yields, versus a discount window, which is a specific acute uh, access to fed liquidity and, and that the conflating those two things i know this is at the we're at the end of the podcast i can't go into it so sue me but conflating those two very specific different types of actions to me is a mistake uh there's a discount window that's the job of the fed is to provide liquidity in a discount window and and there is overall ownership of mbs treasuries and managing the yield curve etc cetera, etc cetera. and to conflate those two things is a mistake Sorry. Fair enough. Fair enough. I've been waiting a week to say that. <laughs> do, you, do you have any do you have any parting words here on on the Fed swap lines? Can you just see Rich standing in front of the mirror? You know, just repeating <laughs> that, trying to get it down right. And you're so mean to me, combing <laughs> his hair at the same time. Uh, yeah, the swap uh, something that people may not realize. Usually, swap lines are are done weekly. When they did this recent one, it was daily. And uh, it, it's similar to what Rich just said, that the Fed has to provide dollar liquidity to the world when when it needs it. 
and it it clearly needed it. And I think because they've they've experienced so many crises over the last you know ten plus years now, they know right on cue when they need to do it, as opposed to being delayed. And you know it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with it; it's a fact. And once they do that, it, it does help to uh, calm things down. So you do get to see who's drawing on it and who isn't. Uh, but again, the, the world revolves around the U.S. Uh, the U.S. banking system and you know king dollar you know, as, as they call it. Well, there she was, gone. It's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, thank you for your ongoing support. If you've enjoyed this show, all we ask is that you leave us a five-star review, some comments on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, continue us to, to boost us up in the uh, the algorithm there and continue to grow the Looney Hour community. If you have any questions, feedback, of course, you guys can always shoot us an email. Go to looneyhour.ca. There's a little thing there. We get a lot of listener questions so we appreciate that we're doing we're doing our best to answer those but uh so bear with us as always appreciate your support and we'll see you next week